full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes, nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. William Shakespeare, The Tempest. Hello, and welcome to Bedrock, a podcast on Earth's earliest history. I'm your host, Dylan Wilmeth. Episode 15, Sea Change. Last week, we took a water break, learning how asteroids brought ice crystals to Earth, which gradually melted into today's oceans. Some folks think that water was present in our very first building blocks close to the sun, while others say that icy asteroids were flung from the outer solar system by Jupiter's gravity, adding a late veneer of water-rich material. The chemistry of modern Earth water most closely resembles this outer family of cold asteroids. But, as more recent evidence is uncovered, that story might be changing as we speak. Today, we follow those asteroids back down to the Hadean Earth. 4.4 billion years ago, January 14th on the Earth calendar. By this time, geologists know that liquid water was present on Earth's surface, covering most or even all of the planet. How? Through the only pieces of Earth left from that time are old crystalline friends, the Jack Hill Zircons, from Western Australia. This episode, the Jack Hill Zircons will tell us how the Earth changed from a hot world of magma oceans to a cooler planet with watery seas. Let's start at the beginning, at the bottom of the brand new Hadean Ocean. It's time to return to our imaginary submarine. Part 1. A Silent Sea When last we left our submarine in Episode 7, It was floating on top of the magma ocean 4.5 billion years ago, as the rogue planet Thea came crashing down above us. 100 million years later, we arrive at a very different scene. Generations of meteor impacts have brought water from around the solar system here to Earth. At first, the surface is way too hot, and the water vaporizes into steam. But eventually, year after year, drop by drop, water begins to settle in the low places of the planet. Puddles become ponds, ponds become lakes, and lakes become a global ocean. Just like the Earth itself, the seas had very small beginnings. But from small things, big things grow. It's nighttime on the Hadean Ocean, 4.4 billion years ago. The full moon hurtles overhead, the size of an apple at arm's length. Its face has a few big craters, but not the giant dark splotches that will form the man in the moon. For now, the moon looks more like a giant golf ball than our modern pockmarked friend. Let's sink down into the moon's reflection and look at the new world beneath the ocean waves. It's a quiet ride down to the ancient seafloor. There are no fish swimming out of the way, no strange glowing squid peeking through our portholes, no whale songs, No dolphin calls. Throughout the fathoms of the early ocean, all is silent and dark. It was a simpler time back then. There is no definitive evidence for life yet, but we'll return to that idea at a later point. Eventually, we reach the barren ocean floor. Apart from the lack of visible life, it looks remarkably like the bottom of today's oceans. A vast plain of dark black basalt stretches before us in the submarine's headlights. 
As we touch bottom, our view is suddenly obscured by a brown cloud of sediment. Don't worry, our landing has just kicked up some mud from the seafloor. This dust-up is the most exciting thing that's happened to us this trip, but it's also a sign of things to come. Almost all the rocks we've talked about until now have been igneous rocks, born from cooling magma or lava. We've seen dark basalt at mid-ocean ridges, granites in magma chambers, and pale rhyolites in volcanic arcs. In contrast, the sediment settling around our Hadean submarine is a product of water, not lava. Way, way back in episode 2, we talked about sedimentary rocks, taking an imaginary walk from a beach into the modern ocean. On the beach, we saw that waves and rivers physically break down rocks to form sand. As we walked deeper, the grains became smaller, turning into soft mud beneath our feet. Now, that story is true for sediments close to shore, but way out here, in the middle of the ocean, water uses a different technique to turn rocks into mud. Chemical warfare. If you put a rock into a glass of water, you could leave it there for years and it wouldn't look like anything was happening. But on a slow, microscopic level, the water and the rock are changing each other. Take our old friend olivine, for example. Olivine is a common mineral in ocean basalts and easily reacts with water, turning into completely different minerals. This transformation usually weakens the rock, breaking it down into tiny pieces of mud. Just as thousands of ocean waves turn a boulder into a grain of sand, thousands of years sitting in water will turn the same boulder into a pile of clay. If you're an impatient person, you can see a similar process happening much faster with a piece of pure iron. Leave an iron rod sitting in water long enough, and it will slowly rust away. Scientists call this process weathering. If you want to learn more, check out my interview with Dr. Ella Holm, where we talk about weathering as a counterbalance for climate change. We can see weathered basalts across the modern seafloor, but how do we know this was going on in the Hadean 4.4 billion years ago? We don't have the original basalts, and we certainly don't have the original muds. The only things we do have are the Jack Hills zircons. We've seen how different elements in these zircons tell different stories. Uranium and lead provide an hourglass. Hafnium and lutetium track the ancient crust. Today, I'll introduce you to a far more familiar element that tells the tale of Earth's earliest oceans. This is an element that is shared between basalt, water, clay, and zircon, making a gigantic ballroom dance across the Earth's surface. This element is oxygen. Part 2. The Fractionation Tango When you think of oxygen, you might imagine the colorless gas entering your lungs this very second. This is pure oxygen, O2. Every breath you take contains around 21% pure oxygen. The lower limit for human survival is not much lower, only around 19%. Back in the Hadean, a breath of air would have less than point. 0.002% oxygen, more than 100,000 times slower than today. Needless to say, if we time-traveled back 4.4 billion years ago, we would need spacesuits just to breathe. In fact, for 90% of Earth's history, oxygen levels were too low for human survival. The breathable world is a very recent event, one we will not witness until the very end of our last season. But oxygen is far more than just a gas. It loves to react and combine with other elements. 
The rust on a car contains oxygen plus iron. A brown apple slice contains oxygen plus carbon. The water in your glass contains oxygen plus hydrogen. The O in H2O. Oxygen can be a fickle element and often moves from one location to another, from gas in the air to rust in the ground to water in the ocean. But not all oxygen is the same. Some atoms are heavier than others. I'm not going to bog you down with numbers yet. For the moment, all you need to know is that oxygen comes in two main flavors, light and heavy. Scientists call these varieties isotopes. You can think of them like dog breeds. A chihuahua is much lighter than a Great Dane, but both are definitely dogs. The oxygen in a breath of air, a piece of rust, or a glass of water is a mixture of light and heavy isotopes. Imagine a series of dog parks with different ratios of chihuahuas and Great Danes. When oxygen moves between materials, different isotopes begin to separate. There are some places where lighter atoms prefer to sit, and others where heavier atoms are more comfortable. Back to our dog park analogy. There are some areas where chihuahuas can go that Great Danes can't, and vice versa. Scientists call this parting of the ways fractionation, from the Latin word meaning to divide. It has the same root as the words fragment, fracture, and yes, fraction. Fractionation is a term we will see throughout this podcast. It's a cornerstone of geochemistry and deciphering Earth's ancient past. Almost every element, from hydrogen to uranium, has light and heavy isotopes. Just like oxygen, these isotopes move between different materials, leaving distinct fingerprints. If you know how to read isotopes, you know how to read a rock. Let's take the idea of fractionation and apply it to the Hadean seafloor we just explored. Seawater is slowly weathering dark basalt into soft clay. Every ingredient in this recipe has some oxygen, the water, the basalt, and the clay. On a microscopic level, the gates have been opened wide, and the oxygen atoms now have a choice. Would they rather live in a mineral or water? In this case, the light oxygen isotopes are atomic chihuahuas, prefer to stay in the water. In contrast, the heavy oxygen isotopes, the nuclear Great Danes, would rather sit inside a mineral. In short, if you took a glass of seawater and some basalt from the ocean floor, the basalt would have a much heavier oxygen signal than the water. So, now that oxygen has leapt from water into basalt, there's only one step left, getting it into a zircon, where scientists can measure it. Part three, from water to fire. On January 11th, 2001, I was probably playing on a snowy schoolyard in southeastern Wisconsin, dreaming of dinosaurs and mammoths. Little did I know that on the same day, only an hour and a half to the west, in Madison, Wisconsin, a research team was celebrating one of the landmark papers in science history. The paper was published in the journal Nature, the highest place a scientist can hope to reach. The authors were Simon Wilde from Perth, Australia, John Valley and William Peck from Madison, and Colin Graham from Edinburgh, Scotland. This was the article describing the oldest material on Earth, the zircon grain W74-2-36 from the Jack Hills that we met in episode 10. As of 2022, no one has yet found anything older than 4.4 billion years. That fact alone makes the wild paper significant, but wait, there's more. 
This paper is also tied for first to describe the earliest evidence of water on Earth. In fact, the other Jack Hills paper was published in the same issue of Nature immediately behind Simon Wilde and the others. Sometimes, two separate research groups arrive at the same idea at the same time. This second paper was written by Stephen Moises and Mark Harrison from UCLA and Robert Pigeon from Perth. Later the same year, the Wisconsin group published a more detailed water paper led by William Peck. In short, 2001 was a big year for the Jack Hills. The details differ slightly, but the 2001 papers of Wilde, Moises, and Peck all conclude that water was present on the Earth's surface 4.4 billion years ago. All of them use oxygen isotopes from the Jack Hills to tell their story. To finish our tale, let's back up to the Hadean seafloor, where we left our submarine. We've just learned that Earth's new ocean is already starting to change the rocks around it, physically and chemically. At the bottom of the ocean, seawater is slowly turning dark basalts into clay. This weathering process involves an exchange of oxygen isotopes, with basalt getting all of the heavy atoms. To see the rest of the story play out, we have to press the fast-forward button. Our poor basalt gets buried deeper and deeper below the seafloor. Eventually, the dark rock melts into a magma chamber, an isolated bubble of molten material within Earth's crust. As we saw in episode 13, the magma slowly cools into a pale rock with large crystals, a rock that would look at home on a kitchen countertop. Granite. All the heavy oxygen atoms that the basalt gathered on the seafloor are now shuffled into different minerals, including tiny purple zircons. Fast forward even more, and this granite is eventually weathered away by water, just like the basalt before it. The only crystals tough enough to survive are the zircons. Unlike basalt, zircon doesn't like to play with water and greedily keeps the heavy oxygen atoms all for itself. Which is a good thing. Without the zircons hoarding their precious cargo of ancient oxygen atoms, we would not have the story I just told you, the story of Earth's earliest oceans. At the beginning of the season, I described the Hadean as a time period that would fit well on the cover of a heavy metal album, with planetary collisions and magma oceans. But now, 200 million years later, only two weeks on the Earth calendar, the planet is cool enough to have liquid water. Don't get me wrong, it's still incredibly hot, with daily meteor showers, a gigantic moon, and days lasting only a few hours. But now, there's an ocean the calm seafloor and even mud. Who's to say there couldn't even be some life down there? Next episode, we finish our tour of the Jack Hill Zircons by examining that very question. Could life have survived in the early Hadean? And if so, is there any evidence that it was around back then? Thank you for listening to Bedrock, a part of Bee Giants Media. If you like what you've heard today, Please take a second to rate our show wherever you are. Just a simple click of the stars, no words needed unless you feel like it. If just one person rates the show every week or tells a friend, that makes us more visible to other curious folks. It always makes my day, and that one person could be you. You can drop me a line at bedrock.mailbox at gmail.com. See you next time.